not change it for the sake of changing it for your own benefit. So if you're omitting, you know, pieces of data, you should make the audience aware of that so that they have an informed decision. Today we have with us someone who is a passionate advocate for importance of data. He's a frequent conference speaker and a YouTuber. Uh, he's known for the Good Morning Show. He's ranked among the top five global thought leaders and in, and influencers on big data, digital disruption, and top 15 on innovation. He's also the founder of Lights on Data. Welcome, George, to the Co-Learning Launch Podcast. Thank you, Kunal. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, so you've done a lot of work on data governance and business intelligence. Also, you're currently focusing on creating content around this topic, and you've created some courses also around it. In a few words, could you tell us about the, could you tell the audience about what data governance is and why is it important within organizations? Absolutely. And we could talk about this for hours, but in just a few words, I do want to quote Robert Siner because he's a well-known individual in the data governance space. And he created something that's called non-invasive data governance. And what he means by data governance and what a lot of other um, leaders mean by it is really the execution and authority and enforcement of authority over the management of data and data-related assets. So it's really trying to put some sort of guidance on how to manage data. Absolutely. And uh, now, how, now uh, let's flip the question towards the data scientist community that we have. And often data scientists begin with learning algorithms, Python codes, tools, and all of that thing. Mm -hmm. And there is not even mention about data governance during any of those courses, right? Now, mm -hmm. how important is it for data scientists to understand data governance and how does it impact them if they fail to understand it? Yeah, at the very least, you need to be aware of it. But I, why I, data governance, I think it's one of those foundational pieces that any organization needs to have in order to have data assets that can then be transformed into that information that data scientists can use, can utilize in their, their models and draw some meaning out of it. And there's a few reasons why. First of all, we need to understand what data can we use? What data are we allowed to use? How can we use it? What is the context? If we want to find out more information, who do we contact? So data governance helps with all of that. It also ensures its data quality. So the reason why you need to do so much data cleansing on your own, Forbes estimated, I think more than 60% of a data scientist's time is spent of, on cleansing data. And then, of course, you need to wrangle and do other stuff before you get to work with it. But I would assume that 80 to 90% of the work that you yeah. first need to do is dedicated on stuff that's not related to your work, if you think about it. It's frustrating right. stuff. And all of that, for the most part, needs to be done when there's a lack of data governance. Because then right. you don't have data, proper data quality, management in place. You don't have proper data security and privacy and you're not getting that context either. So for all those reasons, data governance is important. And if you as a data scientist are at least aware of it, and you're aware that the organization that you're working for does not have it, you would be another advocate for its initiation. Absolutely. And it also does not hurt to know 
that you have a repository of information there with all the rules at one place so that it's easier for you to mine and get the relevant pieces of data for the task that you have at hand. Absolutely. Okay. Data governance puts together that framework that then establishes that data dictionary and what are those best practices on entering information and consuming it, as well as the business glossary. And of course, the data catalog, which is an all-time favorite for data scientists, I would think. Yes. And I have this I had this question where data governance is obviously a team that does it or what sort of people generally maintain data governments and how the how does the team look like uh, for data governance? Yeah, so you know <laughs> I, I'm answering a lot of these questions with it depends. And it does depend of the size of the organization, of the industry that you're in, and it can range from one individual to a whole team like you were, you're asking about. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, data governance teams or even the individuals themselves come from the business line. So they're not necessarily from IT as a lot of people might think just because it has data in there. So it comes from the business because it's the business that needs to have ownership over that data. It's really, yes, I, there's a close partnership with IT and IT does a lot of that implementation, the technical implementation but it's really the business that knows what are those needs, what are those data quality rules that need to be put in place, who should own what, who's the steward of which. Most of the time it does come from maybe a business analyst, maybe a manager from the business side that would be part of of the data governance team. Oh, okay, awesome. Now, now, the other side of it is cost to company on if data governance not getting done properly. So I wanted to basically give a small perspective or let's say a ballpark number, maybe a few examples on let's say a company that does not implement data governance at the start of a project, but then later they realize, oh, we have to do this and we should have thought of it you know, earlier on. So how does this cost the company or how does this company get get impacted in the later stages if that's not done early on? I, mean, I think this is one of the challenges with data governance from the start is proving that return on investment and to be able to calculate it because it's hard to, to calculate something that you're not doing already. And mm-hmm. you can just look at some business cases, case studies of other companies to see they haven't done it. They were hit by this fine. I think Citibank allegedly, but I, I do think it was Citibank a couple of months ago that they got a fine for $400 million. And one of the reasons was a lack of data governance. So that's already there. That's a good business case for any other financial institution that doesn't have that type of program yet. But then you can also tie it back to the data quality piece because with Without data governance, you can't have proper data quality. And I can uh, get into the weeds as why that is. But what was it? IBM estimated that the U.S. economy alone is suffering from $3.1 trillion because of bad data quality. So that's another business case there. And we can go all the way back to the record level. And there's different ways on how you can calculate it. If you're catching something before you're using it, it could cost maybe... 10 cents, and then it can go up to maybe $100 per record if you're catching it after it's being utilized in a data science model, for example. Okay. So there's different ways of trying to 
related data governance to all these other areas on data privacy, security, as well as data quality in a way to, to calculate that return on investment. Absolutely. And, and I was just thinking about this case in London, I think, where they were using Excel sheets to capture the COVID uh, cases and right. they ran out. Right. And, right. Uh, that's that's a big, huge cost if you know data is not getting captured. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So now that we have established the importance of data governance, both for organizations and data scientists, if you can give us like the core pillars of data government. So if somebody is looking into the projects, they're, they're beginning the project, what are the mm -hmm. core factors that need, they need to consider? First, it's, I think an outmost is the culture itself because implementing a data governance program induces some sort of a change. So you need to understand how should you come about doing that change. And because of that, it really works differently from one organization to another. So there's not, you cannot follow a cookie cutter solution, but it only take you so far because you really know, you need to know how to address those individuals and get those partners on board. And speaking of which, um, that's another great pillar that you do need to have that sponsorship in place. And ideally, it needs to come from the executives as high up as possible and as many as possible. It's, it's actually more beneficial to have more sponsors than just one. And again, I can get into the weeds as why that is. So mm -hmm. the, the sponsorship, the culture, then you need to have some sort of a data governance council committee, whatever you want to call it. But it's really a group of individuals from the business along with IT that would make decisions on to where should the data governance program focus first. And then of course, it's you have your data governance professionals that once that's being decided, they can decide on how to implement that piece based on best practices and their knowledge. So once you have all of that, you then also need to put together some sort of a framework to understand how everything really falls together, who reports to who, how you're forming all these data, data stewardship, data governance, little groups for different subject matter experts and different areas that you need to focus on. And off you go. Then you just start on creating your data policies and your data standards and your processes and identify all these roles and responsibilities and you're golden. But usually this can take at least a couple of years, if not longer. Yeah, because a lot of uh, folks are not yet comfortable with documenting the data sources or ensuring that the intake processes or the you know places, sources from where it's coming from are legit or uh, usable, not usable. Usually everybody is just going by uh, whatever is the best possible option and just get their work done and then just move on. But then absolutely, and in a bigger organization, everybody's it's the wild west because they're not even aware of what other departments, other units are doing because mm -hmm. of, again, this lack of data governance and the whole silos mentality. And you think you're using the best technology, the mm -hmm. best, whatever suits your needs, as well as all these data sources that you might be collecting information for that other units would be able to benefit from it, but they're not even aware that you're collecting it or acquiring that data in the first place. Absolutely. And uh, now that we've taken part of the, talked about the the aspects there, can you give us an as, uh, uh, a 
good case of data governance i, I heard one of your podcasts where hr being one of the top most governed a role model uh, example and where it's least least which business or units generally don't they overlook the data governance as a quality or should need to be done which business or which business unit all right again again it it does depend on the organization i've seen it all it can be that hr doesn't want anything to do with it but it can be that um hr is one of the the early departments that's on board to manage that hr data I think for the most part, what I've noticed is it is actually IT. A lot of organizations then jump in to take ownership of that. And usually that's the wrong way about it. But again, it all depends. It goes back to that culture. And why it's the wrong way about it to have IT jump in on board and take on that ownership is because then it does give on that impression that it's an IT thing. It's IT again that puts together everything. And the problem with that is that we still need the business to be able to provide us with all the answers really on how things should be done. It's the business that defines those business requirements by which data needs to confirm. And without their involvement and without them feeling a sense of ownership, it's hard to get anything good done. Absolutely. And finance, finance is another another area that ideally data governance could fall under and a business unit that usually jumps on board to to take some ownership of that. And again, it depends on the organization, but I've seen a lot of cases where the data governance program reports to the VP of finance, for example. And uh, have you seen any uh, business units, marketing business units? I work in the marketing uh, business unit and we often have uh, a lot of cracks through in terms of capturing data, but uh, what's your experience working with marketing departments? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So marketing as well as sales, they're really a good good use case for the benefits of data governance, like you mentioned. So they're usually at least sitting at that table on the data governance council committee, whatever you want to call it. And there could even be a sponsor of the program. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. So uh, switching gears now, there's this business intelligence part. Now on this business intelligence, it's more storytelling uh, problem statement than an engineering problem statement. Most people think if you'll put together a bunch of metrics and if you put some graphs together, we'll have a dashboard and, and it will be usable. But it's rarely the case, right? When you take it to a, a stakeholder, they'll say, can you put this metric here or can you show this chart in that form? Can you compare it against this, right? This, the, Often the stakeholder can paint a picture, but the one who's executing will totally be lost because there's a lot of back and forth. And that's really because we are trying to tell a story out of the dashboard for that stakeholder. And that's why it becomes a more storytelling problem statement than really an engineering problem, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you've, you also have a course on um, data visualization for data storytelling. So I wanted right. to ask you this, when you, when you started to build dashboards, did you ever have storytelling in mind? Like the first dashboard that you... Uh, prepared i haven't no i know I, I haven't and you know what to be honest i wish i would have known a few of the things that i know now in the beginning because they've been so much more useful now not any dashboard or report needs to tell a story necessarily it all gives some conclusions and some of those insights back to the reader that can make their own story but mm -hmm. not everything needs to follow a story necessarily so usually a story kind of 
follows a, a structure in like how we are seeing in a movie that we have that introduction of here's what's going on here. And then you have some sort of a exposition and climax that it gets to and then whatever the conclusion is. And the dashboard or a report doesn't all of it need to take us through that motion. But some are just you just want to provide some insights. Here are your stats for today. And there's nothing else to it. You just maybe just see your KPIs. And that's about it. Whereas there are some dashboards, like you mentioned, some reports that want to walk you through the narrative as well. Tell you, here's the context, here's the premise, and here's where we're hitting this mark and why we're hitting this target at this date, whatever the reason might be. It just, yeah, it just leads that that end user through the conclusion that the author wanted them to reach at. So it's a little bit more guided. How did you basically switch, find the importance of uh, storytelling and then switched? And then how did you learn all of that skills required to tell story with data? I I think it's something that's data storytelling. Really, it's an important skill that any data professional should have. And the reason why is because at one point or another, you need to present your findings and you need to put together, if you will, some sort of a business case of why, maybe as a data scientist, why your um, data model works, why as a business intelligence professional developer, uh, why you've put together this report and why does it show, why should you continue investing into it? As a manager, you wanna maybe build a, a case on why you need more resources in one area or why you need to hire this other person or why you need funding for this other piece or proving that what you've done works. Even in in data quality management, data governance, you want to showcase that, hey, what you've done so far has these improvements and how does that help? So you need to put together that business case really in, in all of these areas. And for that, it always helps out if you can back up your claims by data. And that's where the data storytelling comes to to not just present them a dashboard and a report and people can draw their own conclusion, but walk them through that conclusion, help them reach that conclusion together with you. So that's I think that's where the need came for me in being in a bunch of meetings with stakeholders that I had to prove things and trying to find better ways on how I could express those findings, how I could express my conclusion to them. Right. And often one thing I find very interesting is like whenever I'm working with stakeholders, we often try to show data. And when we look at it in the first point of view, it doesn't tell the story that that we want to tell. The data is not backing it up. Mm-hmm. And so then we twist it in maybe let's say if the absolute numbers are not working out, we'll say average or we'll reduce we'll reduce the periods. Let's say we'll reduce the time frame or we'll increase the time frame and, and then show up better picture. When you're working with storytelling with all of these things, these are some of the nuances. And do you have some uh, tricks uh, up your sleeve that help you tell this nuanced story, very subtle changes and tell it much more better for suiting your narrative? That's a great question, Kunal. So I think first we need to keep in mind the audience because depending on what audience we have, we can tailor that story accordingly. Now, some audiences, they want to see all those details. They want to really get into the weeds, whereas some, they want to see something a bit more high level, more, uh, let's say, th- that strategic level. Now, on, back to your example, 
it definitely depends on what filters you're applying to your data visualization to just narrow in to that conclusion that you want to draw. I think what you what always want to be careful is to not change it for the sake of changing it for your own benefit. If you're omitting pieces of data, you should make the audience aware of that so that they, they have an informed decision uh, that yes, that is the conclusion, but it's based on these factors. So I think that's something that I've noticed some data professionals are avoiding to do because they're they're afraid of showing the full picture. But I think it's, we always, if we were to put a different lens on it, we always need to show our audience what the lens is. I think transparency is really key. And as transparent as we can be, the better a trust we can create with our stakeholders. Yeah, and that's that's why we are there for doing the job, right? Like to show the business where we are. And often it can be also as simple as putting an asterisk there and ensuring that we have exactly. as a call out, call out at exactly. the bottom. But listen, I've seen so many bad examples of data visualization, data storytelling with truncating the data and filtering it out and having even different dual axes, but with different different yeah. values on each. And yeah. there's a lot of bad examples out there. And we unfortunately, we're seeing this a lot in mass media on the news where maybe a political party or a particular newscast is trying to deliver a message that it works in their favor or the fate in the favor of the story that they're telling or they want to tell. And it's not, it's a little bit misleading. There's a couple of books that talk, they do some great stories and great examples on how that might is. And one that comes to mind is from Alberto Cairo uh, that recently wrote a book on how, I think it's called How Numbers Lie. And he showcases a lot of great examples of on data visualizations that were surfaced to the population and how they are misleading and how we should all become a little bit more data literate and understand how we should be reading these and why they are misleading in the first place. Absolutely. And I I think I've come across some of the examples there, especially uh, while visualizing uh, bars. I know it's the most simplest chart to plot, but again, we can go wrong in so many ways by just using a bar chart. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of these charts and all of that thing, right? I've seen that a lot of people use multiple varieties of charts, but often bar charts, line charts are the ones that that work best across different stakeholders. So, in your in your experience, like what sort of a mix of charts do you typically use for any visualization? Like you said, Kunal, I think those are the start. And I've also noticed that sometimes data professionals are avoiding those because they are common. Yep. But I think that's one of the reasons why we need to use them because they are so common. common. And the reason why is because the audience is already used to them. They understand them right away. So we don't want to have our audience spend a lot of brain power to understand what is that type of graph and how should I be able to interpret it. We want the audience to be able to embrace it as soon as possible and draw their own conclusion. Now, that being said, the bar charts and line charts aren't good for everything. So, mm-hmm. at, you know, at one point you want to move on to whisker box, box plot or something else. But um, they are really, uh, I think, something that needs to be part of your core repertoire on data visualizations for that reason, because they are so common. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And funnily, one of my experiences was that hey, when I was starting off showing presentation to stakeholders there, so I used to put like spider chart or amico chart and, and put it. And by the way, the spider chart is a favorite in data governance. Oh, it's a favorite there. I mean, contextually probably there, but I, I typically deal with customer data. So if I put that chart there, you know, my, my stakeholders will be like, okay, uh, they don't understand it. But if I, the moment I convert it into a bar chart or a line chart, everybody gets it. Exactly. <laughs> it's, 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 it's that simple. Okay. And you, you know what else? A lot of people have a, a hate for pie charts. You, you yeah. haven't even noted, uh, mentioned the pie chart. I wonder if it's for that reason. And rightfully so, the pie charts are misused in a lot of times. And you can definitely represent that data a lot better through a bar chart, for example. But at one point, you again need to go back to the audience. And if that's what they're used to, if they're used to digesting that information through a pie chart, that's what they prefer from the start. Maybe that's what you need to start and then slowly try and convert them into something that's better. But I think you do need to go through that journey and not implement that change right away because mm -hmm. a lot of people just become adverse and they're like, no, I, I don't like this. Where, where's my pie chart? Right, so you need right. to take them through that whole change management yeah. piece and getting them used to something better. Yeah. Which, yeah. You know, in your yeah. example, uh, do you have any examples uh, where you use pie chart to show and how it can be more relevantly and contextually put nicely? You know what? It could work uh, very well for an interactive dashboard. If you have two dimensions and you want to plug those two dimensions in the pie chart, which is just a dual kind of an on-off thing, and then mm -hmm. use that as a interactive filter. So instead of using a drop-down filter, for example, you can use a pie chart to filter everything else if the uh, data visualization tool allows you to. Yep, absolutely. That's a neat trick. And do you also, are you a fan of replacing the bar charts with some other graphics to make contextual sense? Is that something do you do or should we avoid some something like that? No, obviously, here's another trick, Kunal. Mm -hmm. You can you don't need to stick to one one particular data visualization. So even if you're showing the same thing, you can choose to show it in two different types of graphs in parallel, mm -hmm. depending again on the preferences of your audience or the context that you're trying to bring. You can have a dashboard that all represents the same thing. It has the same dimensions there, but you maybe have two or three different types of graphs showing that information in different ways. I've seen this one organization that was doing uh, this particular piece very well as they were also offering another option for just a tabular view, which mm -hmm. in a lot of, for a lot of reasons, it's a no-no because it's so hard to draw conclusions out of that tabular view. Absolutely. Unless maybe you're able to highlight some of those numbers in some way. Right. But otherwise, just by looking at the tabular numbers against, oh, sorry, in comparison to how you're looking at a data visualization, you're obviously drawing conclusions quicker when you're looking at a data visualization versus the, the tabular view. But they were offering that option because a lot of their audience were asking for those details. They felt they could able to trust the information that was shown to them if they could also look at the numbers row by column if they choose to. Correct. So I think that's a brilliant idea that here's an option for the audience that wants to go granular or even maybe export that information and do something else with it, maybe verify it themselves to begin with right. until Correct. they can trust everything else.
Yeah, and some of these verifications, I, I followed one of my stakeholders, and it's some mm -hmm. of the verifications as simple as they just filter the criteria and ensure that they submit what they see on that sum. It's visible on the chart, right? Just for their sanity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one more aspect of visualization, and that is basically getting the color combination right or match the theme of the company. And mm -hmm. I know you do a little bit of filmmaking and Photoshop yourself. So you already have some idea of how colors are used on a dashboard or, or let's say for editing and all of that thing. But let's say someone who's starting off new and they want to basically have a themed way of doing things. How would they be able to do the, uh, do the same? With colors? Yeah, with colors. Let's say there's a company, their main logo is, let's say, blue in color, and they have mm -hmm. other prime, secondary colors and uh, color this thing. And then how do you use those color palette that are there on your dashboard so that it, it matches? But again, it's not looking uh, too monotonous or something like that. Absolutely. And so there's some great resources where you can get ideas, but also make sure that you're catering to people that su suffer from some sort of a color blindness. And mm -hmm. that's something that I think we we also forget to take into account, but I feel it's something that's much needed. It's estimated that out of 10 people, that at least one to two people would suffer from some sort of form of color blindness. And it could be minor, but it mm -hmm. could be the fact that they only see grays. So yep. we do need to keep that in mind for our audience as well. And there's a lot of great resources. The first that comes to mind is Color Bureau, which offers different palettes for that purpose. And actually, it goes even a step further and you can choose colors that even look good that are if they are printed on black and white or if they're scanned. And so going back to the paper medium, but I derail you're asking about how do we tie in those colors to the brand and how to make it look like not monotonous. Yeah. The challenge with the brand colors, and that's usually my first go to match your visualizations with the branding. It's obvious what's what's tough sometimes if it's, you know, the branding is pink, for example, because if it's a color that's on the same hue as it's, it has a very bright hue, it doesn't work very well on a white background. So we need to have some variants. Usually logos also have some variants as well, depending on if it's displayed on a darker back background versus a lighter background. So we can definitely make use of that. But what we can keep in mind is if the branding has a light hue, a bright hue, then we can use those in our visualizations as accents. So as maybe some tool tips or something, but just really the minor piece and then we just look on the spectrum of colors and choose the opposite color, the complementary color of that, because that goes tends to go well very well in comparison. So that's already we can have another uh, set of colors that we can use just based on that relationship, choosing something that's opposite. Absolutely. This is very helpful for me, especially uh, I struggle with getting the color combination, right? But this is very helpful. Mm. Okay, so another another question on the same line, story and uh, visualizations was there are data story frameworks that I've seen on one of your tweets, right? You have the F pattern, golden triangle, Z pattern, and the good the layouts. Yes, yes. This is the first time I've come across it and I'm like very excited to dive into these patterns. But could you tell us like one of the 
common patterns that you typically use and why do you use it and how does it help? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the Z pattern is maybe the most obvious piece. So if we're thinking of, of a square or a piece of paper in take any dashboard or any report that has that size, the rectangle size for the most part. And what the Z pattern is saying is that on the top left, if you come from left to right speaking language, reading language, then this is the pattern that you need to follow because in the top left, that's where the first attention of your audience is getting drawn to. So that's where you should probably put a lot of great information from the start. So as we've also noticed in some dashboards, that's the high level stuff that here's the big picture. And then as you follow the Z pattern across, you you might find out more details. Maybe even the filters would sit on the right because of that reason. As that's not the first part that you want your audience to see necessarily but it might be the second part that you want to entice your audience to interact with that dashboard. So uh, maybe that's why you would choose to put the filters on the top, for example, of your dashboard. And then as you're going down into to the right again to complete the Z pattern, that's when you start going more into the details, into the weeds. So I think that's really one of the reasons why people follow this pattern when they're developing these dashboards, because that's how your natural eyesight goes even when you're reading a book, that's what you're following. And uh, there have been a lot of eye tracking tests done to understand how these patterns work and where your eyesight lays the, the most. And it's all fascinating, but yes, we can use this information to our advantage. Uh, absolutely. The, the other, other question just related to this is that sometimes I you know, struggle with top to down or they say right to left, right? There are, if I'm trying to work on informing something, there is some pieces of information I just want to put top to down or let's say from left. to. So in your experience, do they signify something like top to down and just left? To, do they signify something the way we place the information? So normally in, in a written heavy content, that's how we follow this F pattern that you've described. Mm -hmm. So when you're reading a blog, let's say, or an article, uh, a news item, uh, this F pattern, what it means is that we tend to, as readers, we tend to scan down that column, like you mentioned, top to bottom, just scan and see, is there anything of interest to us? And if right. we do find something interesting, then that's when we read across, hence forming the Fs. So I think we can make use of that because then on, on that column, we want to summarize that information. Because we know already the your audience is scanning it already, so it's, they're not digesting it in detail. So at that point, we need to put you know those bullet points, or if we're talking about a visualization, we need to be something very concise and not too detailed. And then if we can tie in those key points that we're showing on the column path with some detailed work that we can assign on the right-hand side, then that's golden because that's how readers will follow it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Nice. So speaking of these frameworks, obviously you have worked so many uh, on dashboards and, and, and on, on all of these frameworks, but uh, did you try to develop any of your own framework that you currently use? Like your something that you can call that this is my framework for storytelling. I haven't. I haven't. No, maybe, maybe I need to do one with the shape of a light bulb, like from Lights on Data, which is right. my brand. But no, exactly. I haven't. Who knows? If I'm lucky enough to discover something, that would be awesome. But I also don't want to 
do something just to reinvent the wheel. There's so much great work that was done there by teams of people and researchers discovering this stuff that, yeah. But yeah, if I guess if I'm lucky enough to get some insights from my, my work, then I'll be sure to publish it. Absolutely. Speaking of uh, some with any endeavors that we do in data visualization or storytelling or let's say data government, there are some tools that you use. So uh, just wanted to get some idea of some of the tools that you that you have worked and then are currently focused on working on or experimenting with, let's say. Yeah, I would say the uh, starting with data governance, the I think, again, one of the mistakes that people make is to focus on the tool first. And they purchase this tool, and often enough, it costs a lot of money. I'm talking about at least $50,000 a year worth of licenses, at least. And that's for a smaller company. And they invest in these tools, and then they don't know what to do with them because they don't have anything else that's done. They don't know how to configure them because they don't have that framework in place. They don't have those roles, responsibilities. They don't have those standards you find that need to be done to configure the tool and to know how to best use it. Because a lot of great tools, they are configurable to work with your own environment, with your own rules, with your own processes. And if you don't have them in place, and I've seen this enough mm -hmm. of times to consider a concern as they just sit on the shelf, they're not doing anything. They're just eating your license money away, uh, but they're not using it. And I, I also feel that this is an excuse a lot of the times from organizations not uh, investing in data governance, thinking we don't have the money to buy these tools, so let's hold off to it. You can just start with an Excel spreadsheet, to be honest. And maybe that's what the that story from UK, maybe that was their rationale in the beginning too. Like, oh, we don't have anything. We'll, we'll start in Excel. But yes, at one point, you do need, need to switch to a dedicated tool for sure. Mm -hmm. But what I'm trying to say is that it should not be an impediment for you to start a data governance program. So back to your tool questions, am I allowed to drop names then? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, so I think, I really think that Colibra, for example, it's one of those top data governance tools that you can have. From what I've seen and experimented with others, this is really one of, one of the, the tools that I would definitely recommend for data governance. And they come with all these different modules that you can plug into your with data data catalog and data dictionary and other useful tools for data lineage and data modeling. So even ties into different uh, data profiling tools. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm getting my hands dirty on Colibra and I find it very useful because if I have to look at one table, there's a bunch of tables and I go to Colibra, I know how it's categorized or what's the documentation, what's the rationale of creating a certain column. Then instead of asking somebody, it's there actually. Yeah, uh, that is unless it's fully documented. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. And, and on the data visualization side, there's a lot of options there, and I recommend doing your own research as well because what works for me might not work for you. But mm -hmm. so, as my, my full time job is at the University of British Columbia, and I work with an amazing team of people and way smarter than I am. And they're really great on the data visualization piece, and we're using uh, Tableau for that, which we, we love. Power BI, I think it's another great one. Click is another option, of course. So I think these are the leads in the data visualization space. But for the needs that we have, on the other end, you can go more into JavaScript mm -hmm. um, framework, or you can even do stuff in R. And so there's so many options that you can have. There's actually a lot of articles out there with people that have tried different data visualization tools 
and they just journey their own experience with them on how and what it takes to create the same visualization across. I think the latest one that I've read was like, I think 24 different types of tools that they were using and they were drawing their own conclusions based on their usage and need. So definitely do your own research as well. Yeah, interestingly, just a few weeks back, I created this video uh, where I built an entire dashboard on Excel with data managing including and then mm-hmm. i also did the same thing on tableau and what was your conclusion or maybe don't smell it for me i want to watch that video <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah i'll definitely send you that link <laughs> great if you can post it here too when we go on to chat that'll yeah. be awesome yes yes with this i will move into a section called as a rapid fire round i'll ask you small questions where you can just answer as quickly as possible Power BI or Tableau or any other software? Tableau. What percentage of insights could a company bring out if they did not have data governance in place? Less than 10%. (laughs) Best customer compliment you have ever received? Oh, I think the video quality of, of my videos. That was dear to my heart just because I'm spending a lot of hours editing. That spoke to me. And I know, I mean, if uh, filmmaking is your passion, right? Like you, you spend a lot of time editing, but you know, sometimes uh, making this content and uh, they don't do editing uh, naturally, <laughs> it can get them frustrated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most uh, preferred online learning platform? Like the one that I'm using, which is uh, Thrive Themes Apprentice. So it's the, the platform that I use to deliver my course content on. Nice. Awesome. Do you hire through LinkedIn? I have only once, but it didn't work too well. Okay. Most common mistake while creating dashboards? It's overloading it with content, not having enough white space on it. If I had to give up one activity, which one it would it be? Surfing or hiking? Oh, this is so tough. Okay, maybe maybe surfing just because you can't do it all year round and hiking, technically you can. Ah, this is so hard. (laughs) I love both. Absolutely. (laughs) Cool. So this marks the end of the rapid fire round. Hope it was (laughs) engaging enough. But now this is, we have a couple of other questions before we close it. And, And this is something as a content creator, I'm speaking right now. So since you are also a create content creator, you make courses, video film and editing all of that, uh, editing and all of that. What's your motivation to create courses? You know what? I've, I obviously went through this journey myself and wanted to learn and I keep wanting to learn. And I, there's a way for me to give back to the community to show them what I've learned. Also in the data governance space, from my experience at least, there was a lot of blah, 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 and very boring stuff. So not enough of practical takeaways. So I thought, okay, can I try and change that? Can I have my content to be a little bit more practical and a lot more engagement that I can create and not just seeing the PowerPoint slides with the bullet points and a lot of content on it and have a person narrate that content that I'm already reading by myself. So I thought, okay, can I do something different? Yes, let me do it. Let me try and give back to the community, show them what I've learned from my experience, have them not go through the same mistakes in trial and error that I've done. So right. I think that was my main motivation. 
Absolutely. And uh, speaking of the, the courses that you have, do you cater to a specific that is not available elsewhere? Like whatever courses I have seen on your site, not fully available. Like you said, they are more readouts than actually experiencing uh, experiential learning. So did you find that gap to be as much uh, as I have in my mind now? Yeah, so far. Yeah, for sure. And I'm also grateful that now I'm seeing other course creators in the data governance space, at least, that are trying to follow a similar model and, or at least try and cover similar topics. So, for example, I have a course on business glossaries and how to develop one uh, that's mm -hmm. award-winning and on data governance maturity models and stuff like that did not exist anywhere. So I thought that's definitely a gap I need to fill out because I feel there's a high need for both. And uh, now I'm seeing other course creators that are trying to target those topics. So to me, that makes me happy. Absolutely. And uh, one more question around this. I generally have a topic, a great topic in mind. I know there's a gap, but then uh, when I try to chalk it down and uh, flesh it out, it, there's a struggle, right? Because there's so many things that you need to create and there are things not available or like you don't have the right narrative or the right example. How does your process of creating a course content look like and keeping the learner's perspective in, in mind? Yeah. So I think initially I try and read and hear about the topic as much as I can so I can hear other perspectives if there are any out there. That's the best way to go about it and try and engage with industry leaders in that topic, ask them questions, find out their opinion. Of course, a lot of, of it is also drawn from my experience, which I think it's probably the first resource that I go myself into when I draw these examples of, or takeaways. But that's one. Do your research. Make sure it's as, as round as possible, that you include as much as you can. What you need to be careful with that, though, is the whole analysis paralysis piece that you have way too much information and you yeah. don't know how to tie it all back into something that's succinct. So that's a challenge at times. And because of that, sometimes something that I've planned for one lesson stems into three. But yeah. I'm always trying to bounce ideas out of you know, off my wife or other people that I know and appreciate their opinion to see, should I include this at all? Or is it okay if I maybe just reference it or not have to mention anything at all? And what I've noticed as well from my my those that are enrolled, my students, is sometimes they're not missing out on that information if they're not aware of it, or mm -hmm. they're actually able to digest information better if it's a bit more simplistic, aired out, and mm -hmm. not all condensed in as much information as you can target in those, let's say, 10 minutes of a lesson that you might have. Yeah, try and break it down as much as possible if you can. But that's one of the reasons why a course that I'm planning for three hours, sometimes it can actually go into five hours at the end when I'm releasing it. Yeah, yeah. I typically fall into the trap of putting so much into 10 minutes. And then when I look at it, okay, I feel it. Uh, the audience is not going to get it. Yeah. Okay, so I'll end, uh, we'll, we'll basically end this podcast with this one question. And and this is basically to give the data the new aspirants some way of how they can approach and learn uh, a certain way. So if you had to build a career in business intelligence and also learn to tell story with data, 
along with visualization in three months? How would they go about it? What should their learning plan look like? Obviously, look at courses out there. I think it's easier if you don't take that journey yourself. And uh, you can also interact with other students and at least a teacher, of course. But that being said, there's so much free content out there as well that you can pick up yourself. But I think you always need to go back to applying what you're learning. If you're not applying, at least for me, what you're learning as soon as possible, then I feel that it's it's going to pass over your head. You're going to lose whatever you've acquired. So as much as possible, try and build your profile, your portfolio at the same time that you're learning. So you can find some you know open data sets that you can download and use that to your advantage to create your data visualizations and use that as part of your portfolio. Thank you. Thank you, George, for giving us so much insights on data governance, the importance, and also the visualizations, data and storytelling and all of that thing. And hopefully, uh, we'll see some of your frameworks come out. And uh, <laughs> I'm vouching for some of your courses also, some of your courses. <laughs> thank you, Kunal. Thank you, George. All right. Thank you for having me.